that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, coming, you, coming to you from Vancouver, BC. Uh, we're broadcasting here on unceded Coast Salish territory, and today on the show, we'll be hearing from an Idle No, Idle no More Indigenous uh, movement panel um, dating back from uh, January 22nd, organized at the Vancouver Public Library. We'll put the movement into a broader historical context and, as well, hear about issues and misconceptions around the movement. You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. Get heavy, get ready, 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 get 
grandmother moon and sister stars will take care of you no matter where you are creator is there creator is aware no need to play truth or death unconditional love is what i got unconditional love for this thing called hip-hop connect to your love and your life connect to feel what's right inside and strong mind strong heart that's where it starts you never know what's next you never know your effects you never know what's next you never know your effects JB, the First Lady, here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. This is The City. And uh, JB, the First Lady, um, uh, she's an Aboriginal artist here from Vancouver. And uh, we're going to get uh, things started, uh, spending the hour today talking about Idle No More. And uh, we're going to go back um, and bring you some content from a past uh, panel discussion and um uh, panel and uh, open discussion around Idle No More and um, from a number of different speakers, um, uh, uh, Aboriginal speakers from uh, really all over the country, um, but a lot of local voices as well. Um, this was uh, from January 22nd, and it was um, brought to a panel convened at the Vancouver Public Library, and it was really intended to discuss um, the historical context uh, to which Idle No More is coming uh, to the fore, and also um, where it's coming from and and why the colonial past and present um, are bringing us to a place where we're seeing a movement like Idle No More um, and really kind of uh, deconstructing a lot of the misconceptions or uh, ideas put forward by mainstream media around what the movement's about and why it's here today. So a lot of those things uh, we'll be looking at uh, over the course of the hour. And uh, also it was intended to be a space to bring uh, together um, Aboriginal and, and non-Native people um, to discuss um, how non-Native people can, uh, can be responsible um, allies moving forward with this movement. So that said, I want to jump right into um, our first, um, hear from our first speaker. Um, but I also want to mention that this is, uh, we're, we're talking about this on an urban, a critical urban affairs program. Because cities are st sites of struggle and spaces to really challenge uh, dominant um, structures and very much colonial capitalist power structures. So we still see this with um, something that you'll hear from one speaker, um, a professor here of political science. Um, he's going to be talking about how property operates in that way. And this is going to be also a theme brought up. Uh, by a number of other uh, speakers over the course of the hour. So how are these very much colonial structures um, and how do they reflect particular social relations um, in today's context? So thinking about colonialism not as something that was then and there and done, um, but very much a colonial present. And how do these um, very much colonial mentalities get uh, re-articulated in today's cities, um, in, in regions, and uh, certainly also across the province, not just in cities. So that's why it's very much um, an urban issue and very much appropriate to be discussing this, um, because cities are sites of struggle and, and places to articulate uh, these concerns and bring these concerns uh, to the fore, as we've seen across uh, cities and communities across the country, Idle No More, uh, very much bringing these issues 
um, to, the, to the front. So we're going to start with uh, first speaker. Um, this is Arthur Manuel. He is a spokesperson for the Indigenous Network on Economies and Trade and Defenders of the Land Network. He's a former chairperson of the Interior Alliance of BC First Nations, and he's been a leading voice of opposition uh, to the Canadian government's agenda uh, to um, uh, essentially extinguish Aboriginal and treaty rights and assimilate Indigenous peoples into the Canadian body politic. This is our first speaker. I think it's important. My main part of my talk, though, I want to talk about is the fundamental change that we need in this country in order to address the poverty that Indigenous people have been experiencing. Uh, and I think it's important to understand that the poor people in this country, Indigenous people, have been made poor because of the system, the colonial system that has been imposed on our land. I think all of you know that with our elders, they say that everything comes from, comes from the land. And I think one of the things you need to realize that uh, British Columbia is larger than California, Oregon and Washington states combined. And you need to realize that in British Columbia, all the combined Indian reserves together only measure 0.36%. Not even 1%, 0.36%. That means the colonial government of British Columbia controls 99.64%. Now you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out who's going to be rich and who's going to be poor, you know. You know, that's, there's no question about it. You know, that's what needs to be addressed. And the government has dug in its heels on that issue. The federal, you know, and, and the federal government has what they call a comprehensive land claims and self-government policies and that indigenous people can either get solutions to the land question through either negotiating or through going to court. And one of the things that's very clear is that if you negotiate, you're going to result in extinguishing your aboriginal title, your aboriginal rights here in British Columbia. You know, the Nishka have done that. You know, the Tawasan, Bertha Williams is here. She's been struggling on that issue. The uh, Manal and the Sliaman have voted on that too. And that is a really serious uh, problem, is that the government does not want to change that policy. And people that have been negotiating under the Comprehensive Land Claims Policy, have been negotiating for the last 20 years, and they have borrowed over $500 million. 
And the government doesn't want to change that, nor do the people who made the money from the $500 million. They don't want to change it either, you know. So the, literally the line, the first line of defense of the government are the people who are negotiating under the existing policy. In British Columbia, we're divided, and we've always been basically divided on the land question. 60% of the Indian bands, the establishment Indian bands, have decided that they will negotiate under the comprehensive land claims policy. They will ultimately extinguish their title. They have borrowed $500 million over the last 20 years. And then there's 40% of us who have decided that we will not borrow any money. We will not sit across the table from a, a, a Canadian government and province whose primary goal is to extinguish our land rights, and we just will not do that. But we've... But we have never had the power to be able to reverse that policy. And I really think that only through the actions of uh, a grassroots movement like Idle No More that you can actually force that kind of fundamental change to happen in this country. And I mean fundamental in the, same, in, in the sense that under this building is Aboriginal title of the, of the peoples here. That's what we said to begin with. But nowhere is there any effort on the part of the people who have uh, so-called private property? Is there, is there an effort to share in those resources with the, with the local band, except through uh, social welfare programs administered under the Department of Indian Affairs? And that is not good enough. We must work toward having our relationship based on what was mentioned here before, Section 35.1. It has to be based upon recognition and affirmation of the Aboriginal tree rights of Indigenous people. And that's how resources have to be shared. And there has to be a redistribution in terms of uh, lands and resources. Uh, we have to get rid of this uh, 99.64 and 0.36% you know, uh, ratio. Because I, I feel that you need to understand that Aboriginal title and land and property, all these things are basically a concept. And the bottom property concept, the bottom layer, like on a blanket, the bottom layer is Aboriginal title. And the province and the federal government were never able to extinguish it, and they never did. That's what come the Supreme Court of Canada recognizes is that it, it, it does exist. And on top of that is, if there is crown title, rests on top of that. And top of crown title rests fee simple, rests uh, forestry license, you know, mining uh, life permits, all these other things. Are, are created off of that. But the base title, the Aboriginal title, we've decided who, those of us who are not negotiating, we decided we're never gonna extinguish it. Therefore, we need to find out and come up and negotiate 
What are the uh, powers and decisions with regard to access and benefits with regards to our Aboriginal territories? And that's what should be negotiated, not extinguishment. We should be negotiating terms of where, where our elders, where our people participate in making decisions with regard to access and with regard to benefits. And those are the things that need to be put in it, but we need to, first of all, you know, uh, reject and have the government pull off the table the old comprehensive land claims policy. Because it isn't a matter of land claims to begin with. You know, why the hell should we, we be claiming land from British Columbia? The only reason we would claim land for British Columbia is that we would believe in the colonial doctrines of discovery. Because in the colonial doctrines of discovery, it says that, uh, I think there's about four white guys who claim BC. <laughs> you know, there was Captain Cook, you know, Simon Fraser, you know, David Thompson, Alexander McKenzie. These guys have said, because we're white guys, we can claim the land from the Indians right from underneath their feet. We can actually even call them Indians, you know, this kind of stuff, all this colonial nonsense that goes along with it, you know? <laughs> and that's what the government is saying that gives them the power to call everything crown title that all Aboriginal lands vest in the crown. That's what happens, like when you do a roadblock, they'll charge you for being on crown land, you know, and that you're a trespasser and they'll throw you in jail. Now we need to challenge that. I know like in terms of the um, Chalcotin case, you know, it was actually raised, the colonial doctrines of discovery. We had a meeting about that, but you know, the courts need to be challenged too. They need to be challenged that the whole colonial doctrine to discovery is a racist property concept and it should not be used as Canada's. <laughs> of Canada's claim to our territory. And that the only reason that the settlers have a right here is based on their human rights. They will recognize settlers' human rights and they need to recognize our human rights. And our human rights include our Aboriginal title to the, to the base part of this land and that we must be part of the decision-making process to determine whether Enbridge goes through, whether or not the Ruddock Creek mine happens, whether Imperial Metal can build a, da a mine on the island. All these issues have to be raised. We need to challenge the the federal and provincial government on those points. And I think those are the, 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 the kinds of reasons that, that, that we need to uh, move forward. I think the other thing is that where the federal government has been vacating the field under the omnibus bill with regard to the environment, I think indigenous people need to say that if you're going to pull out because of budgetary reasons, and that if those environmental protections don't continue, then we are going to, under Section 35.1, assume jurisdiction over those environmental issues.
and you're tuned into the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM and CJSF.ca. And you're tuned into an hour uh, on Idle No More. And we're hearing from uh, a past uh, January 22nd panel discussion. And that was Arthur Manuel. And he was speaking um, uh, as a spokesperson for the Indigenous Network on economies and trade and defenders of the land network. And he's the former chairperson of the Interior Alliance of BC First Nations. And now we're going to go to um, the second uh, speaker um, we're going to hear from on the show. Um, this is Glenn uh, Coulthard, and he is assistant professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of British Columbia, um, also cross-appointed at the First Nations um, uh, program also at UBC and um, the First Nations Studies program at UBC. And uh, he's the author of uh, numerous uh, works um, and uh, has been looking at the issues of self-determination and the politics and language of recognition and identity, among other uh, topics. And he's going to put uh, Idle No More into a historical context. Thanks to the organizers for uh, inviting me here, and thanks to the Coast Salish Peace Poll for hosting us. Um, I've been asked to speak to you today um, and structure my comments uh, with the aim of providing a bit of historical context to the Idle No More movement, uh, more so than that's already been uh, provided us here today. In doing so, I hope to clear up two misconceptions that have been disseminated through the mainstream media about the movement. And this is from, uh, um, from an informed position where I've been reading a lot of this stuff and I've also been asked to speak to it uh, by reporters of different stripes uh, from different organizations. So these two misconceptions I claim our first that we are seeing with Idle No More is entirely unique as far as Indigenous people's struggles and protest activities go. And second, that Idle No More's objectives, um, like was stated before, uh, are vague and at times contradictory and without clear direction. So what I want to do is provide a little bit of a historical perspective. And what I want to claim is that what we are witnessing with Idle No More is the emergent story of a fourth cycle in Indigenous people's struggle for freedom and land in Canada since 1969. Now, our struggles, of course, predate 1969, but the contemporary manifestations of these, uh, these actions, um, I think, really crystallized in 1969. This activism has always sought to resist Canada's attempt to gain access to what's left of our land and resource base for the purposes of increased capitalist economic development and settlement through the imposition of colonial pieces of legislation aimed at achieving this outcome. Each of these cycles begins with Canada's failed attempt to manage Indigenous people's anger and frustration towards the actions or non-actions of the settler state by offering us false promises of a new relationship or partnership through formal recognition of our rights in law, but then in practice, the government proceeds to trample these rights as we proceed forward. The first cycle of our contemporary struggle began in 1969 with Canada's proposed white paper on Indian policy and escalated, I claim, until 1982 with the recognition of existing Aboriginal and treaty rights in Section 35.1 of the Constitution Act. The proposed white paper called for the blanket assimilation of all status Indians in Canada by unilaterally removing all aspects of legal, legal difference that distinguishes First Nations from Canadians under the 1876 Colonial Indian Act. First, First Nations resistance to this policy proposal was swift 
and unanimous. It was correctly reviewed as a white supremacist, racist attempt to eliminate First Nations legal and political status as the undermining of our treaty rights and the attempted integration of our collective land bases into free, simple title dictated by Canadian property law and subject to the imperatives of the capitalist market. The subsequent explosion of First Nations resistance prompted the federal government to shelve the proposed white paper in 1971 and offer its first gift of recognition to First Nations in order to manage our frustration and our discontent. This gift of recognition was the 1973 Comprehensive Land Claims Policy, which sought to extinguish Aboriginal rights to land in places where these rights had not already been ceded, released, and surrendered through the signing of historical treaties with the Crown from the Crown's perspective. Of course, Aboriginal peoples have a very different understanding of what these treaties mean in both theory and practice. In short, the core purpose of the Comprehensive Land Claims Policy, also known as the Modern Treaty Policy, from the perspective of Canada is to gain what it calls certainty over First Nations lands for the purposes of economic development through the extinguishment of Aboriginal rights and title in exchange for the minimal benefits outlined in the land claim agreement itself. So it's about extinguishing our rights in order to gain certainty over lands for the purposes of development and ongoing settlement. Recognizing a bankrupt gesture of recognition when we see one, First Nations leaders such as Arts Father George Manuel continued to fight to have our land and treaty rights recognized and affirmed this time in Canada's highest law of the land, the newly repatriated Constitution of 1982 under Section 35.1, which again recognizes Aboriginal rights and treaty rights. Gaining recognition of our rights in the Constitution Act of 1982 begins the second cycle of our contemporary struggle, which proceeds from 1982 until the 1990s with the publication of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples' Final Report in 1996. You see, the initial hope and promise of a new relationship resulting from our newfound constitutional recognition quickly morphed back into anger and frustration as First Nations leaders failed to gain any headway on negotiating the meaning and scope of our rights through four First Ministers' conferences that were held in the 1980s with the heads of state. These occurred in the, oh, sorry, um, this uh, was again another uh, string of false promises and the anger and frustration from it was compounded by Canada's refusal to budge on the extinguishment position outlined in, its pre in the previously mentioned comprehensive land claims process. So by the 1980s then, Indigenous peoples' anger and frustration was clearly boiling over, resulting in a marked rise in First Nations militancy and land-based direct action, which culminated in Elijah Harper's stonewalling of the Meech Lake Accord and the Kanasatake Mohawk Nation's resistance to the siege on their community by the Quebec Police Force and then the Canadian military in the tumultuous summer um, of 1990. So after constitutional recognition, you have the hope and then the sting of non-action and then just business as usual. This leads us to our third cycle of Indigenous struggle, beginning with the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, conducted from 1991 to 1996, and ending with the Government of Canada's Residential School Policy and the Settlement Agreement in 2007 and 2008. In the wake of the escalating sorry, economic disruption that was unleashed in the 1980s by Indigenous direct action through, um, on the one hand, and having to engage in one of the largest military operations since the Korean War on the other, except for this time embarrassingly and shamefully directed inward at an Indigenous community within its own borders, 
the federal government announced on August 23rd, 1991, that a Royal Commission would be established with a sprawling 16-point mandate to investigate the abusive relationship, sorry, um, that had clearly developed between Aboriginal peoples and the state. Published two years behind schedule, in November 1996, the $58 million, five-volume, approximately 4,000-page report of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples calls for a renewed relationship between Indigenous peoples and the state based on the principles of mutual recognition, mutual respect, sharing, and mutual um, responsibility. Although RCAP's vision of a new relationship premised on uh, Sorry, although RCAP's vision of a relationship premised on mutual recognition is not without its own flaws, it nonetheless offers the most comprehensive set of recommendations informed by five years of research involving 178 days of public hearings in 96 communities across Canada aimed at reforming the relationship between Indigenous peoples and the state that exists to date. The extensive public consultations employed by RCAP subsequently produce a set of recommendations with broad appeal to both Native and non-Native peoples alike, and again escalated the hope of Indigenous peoples that we might be able to set this re relationship straight. After almost two years of perceived foot-dragging, the federal government officially responded to RCAP report in January of 1998. The statement titled Gathering Strength, Canada's Aboriginal Action Plan essentially amounts, or essentially amounts to a reiteration of the federal government's long-standing policy framework guiding its relationship with Indigenous peoples, an approach which continues to circumscribe our land and political rights with the purpose being to shore up state and industry's access to our lands and our resources. Subsequently, in 2006, the Assembly of First Nations issued a scathing report of RCAP, which it called its report card, that assesses the federal government's policy response to the Royal Commission's recommendations. The analysis concludes that Canada has failed to act on key foundational recommendations of RCAP, and as a result, there has been a, quote, lack of progress on key socioeconomic indicators. Based on our assessment, Canada has failed in terms of its actions to date. Meanwhile, post-RCAP Indigenous land-based struggles and direct actions continue, including a very publicized example at Burnt Church, the ongoing reclamation at Grassing Narrows, and another surge in direct action led by grassroots here in BC, um, including a lot of blockading. As well as a marked increase in court actions leveled, at first, or leveled by First Nations individuals regarding the violent impact and legacy of their experiences at the hands of Canada's residential schools. This activism, both legal and extra-legal, eventually forces the federal government to respond with another gesture of recognition, this time in the form of the 2007 Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement, which includes a common experience payment to those who attended residential schools and the establishment of the current Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. And eventually this was followed by Canada's uh, willing or, a bit, or uh, attempt, or not attempt, uh, June 2008 apology made by the Prime Minister on behalf of uh, the Government of Canada to survivors of the Indian residential school system. Characterized as the inauguration of what he called a new chapter in the history of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal relations in the country, the residential school apology was a highly anticipated and emotionally loaded event. Across the country, Native and non-Native people alike gathered in living rooms, band offices, churches, and community halls to pay homage to what was touted as a, a historic uh, moment in, a, in the history of our relationship. 
Although there was a great deal of native skepticism towards the apology in the days that led up to it, for many uh, it was taken as a genuine and necessary first step in the long road to uh, reconciliation. And so we enter our fourth struggle. As a, I'm done, my, I wrote this today and then now I have to ad lib. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the fourth cycle. Again, um, we have the initial gesture of some bankrupt um, attempt to uh, appease us through reconciliation, which amounts to just words and it doesn't amount to any substantive uh, political action. And then as soon as that is offered in just words, the federal government proceeds uh, to go about business as usual. So in the post, 2008, we see housing and material conditions um, in First Nations and other Aboriginal communities deteriorate. You see the, imp or the implementation or imposition of new forms of legislation that are same as the old forms of legislation. They're an attempt to make Indigenous peoples' lands and resources accessible by non-Indigenous peoples, in particular the state and industry, for the purposes of ongoing capitalist exploitation and for the purposes of ongoing settlement. So these are the cycles, the four cycles of indigenous resistance that have come after attempts by the state to uh, placate our demands through gestures, false gestures of inclusion and recognition. Now I think what's important, um, or what we can take from this history, uh, which, um, which isn't evident in media representations of this, or of the movement is that this does have a history. It does have aims. As was stated, those aims are about land and our freedom to live on those lands in ways that will ensure the sanctity and integrity of those lands and our ways of life in perpetuity with non-Indigenous peoples. The second, um, and I would say equally important thing to take from this analysis is that this is not a problem that is limited to um, Harper's action. This is a systemic structural imperative of settler colonial states and the current economy that they work under. So this isn't just Harper being a racist asshole. This is Harper um, acting like what Canada ought to and its uh, premise was built on. So in order to undo that, we have to, as Indigenous peoples, mobilize, organize, and work with non-Indigenous allies and solidarity and to create a uh, entirely different relationship. And that's, from my understanding, what I think I don't know more is about. Merci, Joe. A billion dollars on the ground, all stretched out and uncurled, would extend about four times around the circumference of the world. Become a friend of CITR and get great discounts in the Commercial Drive area at Bone Rattle Music Limited, High Life Records, and People's Co-op Bookstore. It pays to be a friend of CITR. To find out more, visit us in room 233 of the sub on the UBC campus or online at citr.ca. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
despite the fact that 8 in 10 Canadians are against warrantless and costly online spying, the government remains stubborn, set to cement this scheme into law. With their huge PR budget, they've unleashed a reckless and irresponsible campaign that suggests warrantless collection of our private data is on par with a phone book. We can't let them trick Canadians. Go to www.openmedia.ca now to find out what you can do to get involved and stop this smoke and mirrors campaign the government has started. I use my, my what we call Kushamin or my ancestral name uh, more publicly and as my, my everyday name as opposed to the government English name that I, I was given when I was after I was born. Because as my, one of my friends said to me, by going out in the world and living with that every day, you're going to be inviting a conversation with people. And you're going to be inviting a conversation with everybody you meet because they're going to meet your, you're going to meet your name and they're going to want to either know how to pronounce it or what the history behind it is or, or, or all that kind of stuff. And part of that is I'm running into lots of settlers that can't pronounce Squamish sounds. They're very different sounds. And sometimes there's languages in the world that do pronounce sounds that are really similar. But often I'll run into people and they can't, can't pronounce the sounds. And so now there's a relationship where I, I get to practice a life of patience with these visitors and guests that are in my territory and to take the time to teach them how to pronounce these sounds. And that, that's an invitation that I'm doing every time that I, I use this name. And, and fortunately, my ancestral name isn't the most complicated ancestral name out there. There are others that are much more uh, guttural and complicated and things like that. So you're welcome. <laughs> Um, I'm going to give a bit of, a bit of context too, and um, I'm Squamish, but many of you might know it as, as Squamish, Squamish being the, the anglicized English version of our name. Um, to the south, um, we have our Humat, in Squamish we'd say Humatskwim, in Hunkamitnam, Humatskwim, people that live on the, by the Fraser, mouth of the Fraser River. And then to um, the east, we have the Slewat Oth, um, also known as a Barard or Slewatooth. Um, and so these are the three groups in this area. So when people say Coast Salish territories, it's referring to these three groups from this territory. And in um, Barard Inlet, Gingrich Bay, False Creek, these are areas that we all historically, culturally shared and, and used and utilized and lived in together. Um, and you can think about it as if you have a bunch of brothers and sisters that live in a house together, one sibling might use their room in the bathroom, another sibling uses their room in the bathroom in the kitchen, another sibling uses their, their room in the bathroom in, in the living room. But everybody in the house uses the bathroom, or everybody in the house uses the kitchen. So that's the context for this territory. It's three nations that live together, that are interconnected, that are related, that share cultural similarities, also differences, um, historical differences, all that kind of stuff, but they're, they're like siblings living together. We're, we're all Coast Salish. Um, we're all Stalmoch or Holmoch, as they'd say in Hunkamitnam. And so you think about this, this kind of context of living together like this, and you have a process, a legal process that comes in and says, we want you to define where one territory begins and one ends. We want you to define whose is yours and whose is not theirs. 
We want you to argue and to prove that you're from here and that you're from all of these places you say you're from. And so it turns into this thing of, of competition or, or conflict. Because now you have people impacted by colonization, colonized mentalities, colonized ideas, being forced to have to defend their existence um, and prove their existence compared to other people that live down the road. So there's, there's a, it's kind of a historical, a lot of people ask me about that. People wonder about that. Whose territory is this, is this really? Or what does that mean, Coast Salish? So I wanted to give a bit of context about that and a bit of context about who I am. So like I said, I'm Skotmish. I come from the village of Homaltistan. Um, I grew up in North Vancouver, and uh, I'm very glad and proud to be here. I, um, as Harsha introduced, I'm a I don't know more organizer. I also, for years, have been doing language revitalization, community um, organizing, um, both in the cultural sense and the political sense, all that kind of stuff. I got involved in I don't know more when things really started to pick up in December. And there was a, a national day of action that was planned for December 10th. And um, people that organized that, who are now my friends, people I didn't know before that are also Idle No More organizers, organized the rally and I went to it. And then I got home a few days later and I seen a video of a flash mob um, happening at uh, West Edmonton Mall in Edmonton. And there was 300 people with the singers in the middle and then 300 people dancing around this huge mall. Um, if anybody's been there, I've been there twice, and it's like a, a gigantic ball, a big atrium area. And I'm watching this video of these people with their drums and their songs, their pride, um, their strength, going into this place, which is really odd, and often, I think when you really think about it, at very strict odds with our ideas of indigeneity in terms of consumerism and capitalism and consumption and all this kind of stuff. Very different than um, some of the teachings that Darla talked about and some of the teachings that are found in our own history about using what you take and giving back to the land and all that kind of stuff. So it's a very interesting cultural intervention where I've seen indigenous people going into the space, a very different type of, of activism or organizing to bring this message of I don't know more to a different mass of people. And I became so inspired by it. And so I was, I was sitting at home and I was actually talking to a few people on, on Facebook and, and whatnot. And I said, um, this is so cool, check this out. And I was like, I want to do this. When should we do this? Let's do one here. Let's do one in BC. Let's do one in Vancouver. And so I started organizing one. And that's how I got involved. Um, that's a bit about my story that I wanted to touch on. And I'm going to explain a little bit about the historical kind of timeline of things and how it started and where it came from and all that kind of stuff. So, and I have my notes on my, com my little computer, my robot here. I don't know more started in Saskatchewan with four women. Um, there is Nina Wilson, Sylvia McAdam, Jessica Gordon, and Sheila McLean. And it started in, in November-ish, um, and it, it really be, began, from my understanding of it, from what I read in the conversations about it, it began as an opposition to these kind of government bills that were, were coming up by the Conservative government. And there was the big one that was coming up, which was the Bill C-45. And it dealt specifically with issues around the, the water and specifically around changes to the Indian Act and things like that. And so the kind of response was that they were wondering, well, where, who, who's speaking out against this? Who's, who's doing anything about this? What are our own people doing about this? What are our chiefs doing about this? What is leadership doing about this? 
And it started as a response to that in terms of we have to be idle no more and we're going to take a stand and we have to declare opposition to these bills that are being passed that are going to impact our lives and our responsibilities as Indigenous people. And so there was Bill C-45 and there was a whole suite of other legislation too. Um, some of them that hasn't been passed, some of them that hasn't been tabled, but Bill C-45 was the big one that happened in, in December 11th. So the National Day of Action happened on the 10th. So that's kind of the historical. It started in Saskatchewan. It started with these four women around this idea of taking a stand against, against these bills. And about this kind of rallying cry, rallying cry, this idea of idle no more. And the interesting thing about it is that that name itself has been an interesting point of discussion and, and, and um, dissent and conversations and all that kind of stuff. What does it mean to be idle? Who's idle? Are you idle? Am I idle? Are you calling me idle? Like, it, it, it's, it's becoming a point of discussion. And so, the part that I want to talk about is about where I fit into this as one piece of this large streams that are now coming together. Um, I am one of what seems to be an ever-growing list of Idle No More organizers in Vancouver. When um, I had a meeting with Darla and JB and a few others, um, weeks ago and there was 10 of us and since then there's probably closer to 20 people that are organizing events flash mobs rallies um, events like this it's growing the other interesting part about this is that uh, a lot of them are young people I'm, I'm, i include myself in that uh, in a way i'm 23 years old so i'm not that old <laughs> and so there's there is an interesting thing happening. There's young people that are getting involved and organizing, stepping up and actually doing actions. You have young people that are being guided by things like indigenous sovereignty, protecting the land, culture, language, and, and their pride as indigenous people. And you have older activists and older community organizers who are also getting involved and also been involved. People who obviously haven't been idle for a long time doing lots of amazing work on, the, on behalf of Indigenous people. So you have this thing happening where you have young people, new activists, first-time community organizers, people that are stepping up. Maybe they've been an organizer, but they're now reaching a different level. There's a different type. Now they're organizing rallies with 1,000 people. They're using flash mobs with 800 people, things like that. So it's different. So there's a critical consciousness that's being, being awakened, is what I've seen. What I don't know more is people want to know what, what is I don't know more. There's, a, there's a, a level of awareness that's coming. I think I can speak on behalf of myself in terms of indigenous people. Maybe it's happening among the settler community, but I don't know. But definitely among indigenous people, there's, there is an awakening, awakening that's happening. I'm seeing people who have been cultural, but not political, getting involved. I see people who have um, been a part of our ceremonies in our, our longhouse, but saying, what you're doing is good and I support you and this is the right thing to do. And you're seeing elders, our elders, who aren't generational kind of support and awakening that's happening. And, and the part that I really highlight and think is really um, important is that there's a younger generation of people that are getting involved in awakening right now. And I, again, I include myself in that. I don't know more has been criticized by lots of people, especially on the right, for being leaderless and without focus and not clear in its objectives and 
why can't you tell me in two sentences what I don't know more is and what you want and what you'll take to go, for you guys to go away. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and uh, one of the things about I don't know more and about these types of movements, and, and, and there's lots of comparisons that are being thrown around about other past movements and other current movements and, and, and things like that. Um, but I, I definitely think that it's not a metaphor for anything, and it, there's comparisons that can be made on maybe some some little grounds. But it, the, the, there's also a lot more to it than just a simple comparison. Oh, it's like that movement, or it's like that movement, and it's going to fail because it's like that movement, oh, and that kind of stuff. So it's a bit different. The similarities, but it is still different. But there is an aspect I don't know more what it has been so far is that in a sense it, it's it's about what I consider it's not about leaders. It's not about bosses. It's not about chairmen or chairwomen and things like that. It's not about a, a hierarch hierarchical structure forming and then and issuing commands and decisions and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Okay. It's, I, I, I compare it to, I don't know more. What it is right now is it's hosts and organizers. You have people hosting events and organizing events calling the people together, and letting the work happen. This is all terminology I'm using from, from our culture. Kakosum tastalmo, gathering the people. Tla'ashim, going and inviting the people and calling them out, bringing them together. Um, even things like um, these kind of traditional concepts that I'm seeing enacted through I don't know more. And so in that way, yeah, there is no kind of leaders leading people and, and appointed and, 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 and saying and speaking on behalf. I don't speak on behalf of Idol no more. Um, I speak on behalf of myself and I speak on my, behalf of myself as an organizer in Idol no more. And there's a real strength to that, despite what people might critique at this point. There's a real strength in that because, because of that, like I said, we have 20, 25 organizers. People that are meeting each other for the first time. These are organizers that I've met for the first time, that I'm connecting with. So you have indigenous people coming together in an unprecedented way, not just locally in Vancouver, but provincially, nationally, globally. Taking action, standing up, bringing the people together, and doing something. Now, the doing something thing is really important. And this is the, high, the, the main thing about what I don't know more is, and I always laugh when people say, I don't understand what I don't know more is. It, it, it really, it feels really simple to me, and I feel like I, I don't know if they just haven't like Googled it or if they haven't gone on YouTube because there's literally a wealth of uh, of information out there. It's like, I, I, and that's the other thing is that the social media aspect of it. There are people pumping out a ridiculous amount of memes and videos and and arts and and all kinds of stuff. There's tons of stuff out there, so I, I kind of laugh when I hear people say that. Oh, I don't know what it is. I don't know more at its base is really about indigenous sovereignty and the protection of our lands, waters, and air. That was kind of what it started from and a lot of what the organizing has really been about. And so you think about indigenous sovereignty in the terms of the nation-to-nation -nation relationship or the treaty-to-crown um, relationship, which more so comes up um, back east. But, than BC because BC, BC in its historical context of not having treaties. Um, and so if you think about just what that means, nation-nation relationship, and there's teachings about that too. 
this is something that's happening, like I said, in a very wide way. And it's still, it's still young. We're only a few months into this. The thing that will always happen and the thing that I think that will make us stronger to be aware of is that the mainstream will always keep demanding that I don't know more focus on the short term. That's all they did for the past um, three weeks before the, the Crown, the First Nation with Stephen Harper. Always about the immediate, 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 short term goals, short term goals. And the, and the mainstream will always for, focus on that. And that could be mainstream media, it could be politicians, it could be organizations, it could be just the mainstream, whatever you think of the mainstream, always focusing on the short term. Thank you. It's good. We have a joke that um, I could be, I could be speaking, it'll give me a one Squamish minute and it turns out to be an hour. So. I, I have a friend who's, um, who's Scandinavian and he says that they have a tradition in, in their culture that anybody is allowed to get up and speak for as long as they want, but they had to stand on one foot. <laughs> and the moment they had to put their foot down, that's when they're over, so kind of a time limit to it. Oh, that's really good, that's smart. That's uh, indigenous technology of a different variety. I'll, I just want to end with that one, one idea though about, um, I don't know more, is something that's awakening people and it's having people stepping up in a new way. There are problems that do exist and I, I, I challenge people not to frame them as problems actually, that dichotomy of problem-solution. There is something much more complex taking place and there's something much more complex that existed, exists. Yeah, a problem-solution dichotomy implies that you can simply take out one piece put in a new piece and it fixes itself. Like if my car is broken and something is broken on it, I can take out one piece, I can get somebody to put in one piece and take in one piece and fix it and the car runs fine. That's not what indigenous communities are. That's not what um, indigenous to settler relationships are. That is not what nation to crown relationships are. It's not just a simple problem solution. It's much more complex than that. And you've been listening to a panel discussion and a number of speakers from that uh, January 22nd discussion, Idol, No More, and that was organized um, by Harshawalia at, and at the Vancouver Public Library. And uh, that concludes this edition of The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. If you missed any part of the program, uh, you can download it and, and uh, enjoy it at thecityfm.org. And there's also lots of other exclusive web content there as well. You can catch The City live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. here on CITR, syndicated on uh, Friday at 10 a.m. on CJSF. And if you're tuning in here on CITR, you've got Flex Your Head coming up next at 6 p.m. If you're tuning in on CJSF, uh, you've got Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman up next. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're going to go out with a track from JB. This is actually from uh, the panel. Uh, this is JB, the First Lady, um, doing some spoken word um, at um, to conclude this show. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next week. I'm Andy Longhurst. So I've been asked to share a, a quick piece since I'm a hip-hop artist. <laughs> and um, here we go. So um, on the count of three, take one deep breath in. I'm going to do a quick spoken word for you guys. <clears throat> 
so weird to be like behind this thing. Okay. I'm usually like holding the mic, right? You know? <laughs> okay. One, two, three. I was once told all the land would try to be sold. This came from the old. How can land be bought? Someone had to have taught. When will the last fish be caught and rot and bought? It's not going to stop. I come to the light. I come to the fight. I come to the mic, hoping it might change, rearrange. Faint ways some materials are made. Can't escape. Sick of watching lives on tape. I sit in a wait debate. Animate the shapes, create energies unseen. Open the dreams, waiting for the moonbeams. Talk to the grandmas and moms, press pause on the CDs. Beats heal me, flow freely. I got to believe in me. I've got to believe in me. That's what they said in my head in my bed last night. That's what they said in my head in my bed last night. Just go left to the right. Follow your impulses, your desires. Take it high, connect the wise. Stop the fires. No need for denies and lies. Slow motion, hoping and coping. It's in the flow of the ocean. Stars are aligned. I combine this to my mind and my grind. But it makes me push harder, be a better daughter for the people. I don't work for the man who ran to stand against the Indian men. I do it for you and you and you and your whole entire crew if they only knew how to make grandma stew. <laughs> they would realize it's about me and you. Social rights got to fight, bring the light. It's called the mic. The answer is choice and voice. Speak from the truth and love. Just be proud of where you came from. Ah, there's the rub. Believe in yourself. Just don't speak from your mouth. Never doubt. You'll be surprised how wise you can be, how far you can see. I know it's complex. I wish I could send it in a text <laughs> under the subject, beautiful objects. We all got something to say on the religions. Right.